0: Whenever I hear that metaphor, I just think, but the fox would eat the hedgehog, which I know is not the point. (laughs) Have you tried
1: to eat a hedgehog?
0: (laughs) I mean, yes, actually, earlier today. I'm in Brooklyn, there's some very interesting restaurants. Good with garlic, yeah. (laughs) Oh my goodness, Gina Trapani, how are you?
2: It's great to see you. It's been a while.
0: It has been a while. I don't see you as much as I used to.
2: No, we don't. We're doing we're kind of doing different things. It's good though. It's it's important for me to consult with the former CEO of PostLight because I have no idea
0: what I'm doing. Oh no, we don't say that. We say that <laughs> it's a constructive learning environment. It's uh for people at home, it's been really fun because I think Gina used to look at me and go, he has no idea what he's doing. And now she's she's taken the job. And uh, that's the job actually. It's <laughs> nothing else to it.
2: Um, <laughs> is not, not knowing what you're doing it going? and how's, managing that.
0: How's how's technology leadership treating you these days?
2: Oh man, it's a hell of a thing. It it's is a hell of a thing. It it's is. a great it's a great privilege and a great challenge on a daily basis, Paul. It's hard. hard running
0: an agency is hard. You gotta feed the fire, gotta keep people happy. It's a it's a it's a lot. But you have a good partner in, in our president, Chris lasaka
2: great partner and Chris and fun and interesting people that we work with every day, our team and our clients. We've got some really smart, great clients. What an amazing
0: segue. I just can't believe you got us there so quickly. We should actually disclose this is a client and we have taken money from this person to do work for them. We're not going to be able to really disclose much about that work. So... So just get ready, everybody. Welcome Very to a, wor- a world of mystery. But this is a, a friend of the friend of the firm, a friend of the media industry. Um, probably the only technologist that the media industry doesn't just unilaterally hate, and that is that is Tony Hale. Tony Hale, thank you for coming on the Postlight podcast. Let's get the media industry to hate you. Let's let's get in there. <laughs> Yeah, Hi, I, Tony. I I think historically, uh, when I was CEO
1: of Chartbeat, the media industry was pretty much 50-50 split on whether they hated me or not. Um, so oh, can I yeah. just
2: can I just fangirl <laughs> Chartbeat for a minute? Because Chartbeat, like I, we used it on Lifehacker. It was like it blew my mind when I saw that thing. I was like, this is it. This is the pulse of my audience. Like I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, but like, that's because media stuff.
0: people, media people, had never actually considered that the little ball could move around on the screen. We were just like, uh, it's gotta jam the words in the hole and hopefully it'll all work out. And then Tony shows up with Chartbeat, which for people at home who don't know, it was a, an analytics tool focused on like, kind of close to real time analytics it would tell you how your article was doing. Tony, uh, you know, just let me explain your own software to you. <laughs> Give us a little bit of that before we get to what you're doing now. So SharpBeat was a company that you founded, correct? I would always say that
1: I, uh... I came in a little late to the to the to the thing. Really, there's an amazing, amazing creator called Billy Chasen, Okay. who's a kind of a, he's as much an artist as he's a technologist and a product manager. And he built Turntable FM. Uh, sure, familiar with that.
0: a classic. And so, yes. he, like he's,
1: he's just incredibly creative. And initially, what he had built is he built something called Firefly, mm-hmm. which was something where when you went around the web, you could see the mouse cursors of other people as they kind of like were also on that site in real time. And then you could chat with them. Uh, I think Business Insider called it a more ADD version of Twitter, if that's possible. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> the challenge with that particular one was the number one use case was that someone would see someone else's cursor as it's kind of wandering around the page. And they would take their own cursor and they would go and try and hump it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because and- <laughs> of course,
2: that's, that's what you would do.
1: <sighs> and so that wasn't going to be a billion dollar business. Um but people really loved seeing what was happening on, on the site in real time. Mm-hmm. And so Billy started kind of building out uh, the core of what became Chartbeat. I came along. I was an illegal immigrant who just uh, launched a coup against the CEO, of the startup I'd been involved with and been summarily fired, mm-hmm. uh, and was in New York because there was a girl who would let me sleep on her floor, who's now my wife, which kind of worked out for me, and met up through uh, a guy called John Borthwick and Andy Weissman, met up with Billy, and then from there, I kind of like took it on, and Billy actually left very swiftly afterwards um, to go and try and do turntable and other things. And so I kind of like I was kind of gifted this early kind of uh, project from from Billy, and then had to kind of like work out what to do with it and run with it.
2: So then, what happened? Like, t- tell us what happened.
1: Well, so this one, this one was actually a kind of super interesting um, problem to try and solve from a kind of product perspective, because. This wasn't some a situation where a choppy could fail because literally, who else would hire someone like me to to do anything? Mm-hmm. We were a new little tiny startup within uh, within BetaWorks at the time, mm-hmm. and the biggest problem was was that we were paid for analytics service at a time when Google Analytics was great and free and had uh, almost a hundred percent kind of penetration of, uh, of the market of interest. Right, and so. I remember very early on, Google like said, hey, we see you've done this new kind of little prototype thing. Come visit us. And I basically, I didn't realize why they wanted to see us. I was like, oh, they must Uh-oh. be super interested in our tech. No, they just wanted to laugh at me. They mm-hmm. brought me oh. into a meeting where three of them basically were just like, this, you know that this, your thing doesn't even do this, right? And just kind of like went through. Um, the the and, nagging uh, meeting. Mm-hmm. It was, it was kind of an amazing, it, it was an amazing uh, session, but they were kind of right in that we had this huge analytics problem and we had to kind of try and work out like how we were gonna survive in the market. And I went to see um, a very wise man called David Kidder, who uh, was CEO of Clickable at the time, um, which was a kind of like easy way to kind of like serve ads in the Google world uh, thing. And he was like, and I asked him like, am I screwed? Am I completely screwed? And he said, possibly, but here's the thing. Like, if you try to compete with Google and just like try and in any try and way try to be a little bit better, Google will just get a little better. If you try to build a better funnel than Google, funnel analytics, Google will just build better funnel analytics. So try doing the exact opposite of everything that Google does and see where it takes you. It may make the world's worst analytics product, but at least you'll be different. And that's kind of where... We started as like, OK, let's make a list of all the things that Google Analytics does. Let's do the exact opposite of that, and then kind of explore if there's an is there a new user and a new use case for analytics.
0: Give me wow. an example. What, what's an opposite of something Google Analytics does? I, sure. So like Google Analytics
1: was all, of, uh, one, it gave you full history of, of all your analytics. Early Chartbeat didn't have any of that. Um, Google Analytics was focused on your pathway from page to page to page. You couldn't really do that in Chartbeat. Instead, we were focused on what was happening within the page at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. Like Google allowed you to sort and filter and do all kinds of functions. Again, single page, none of that. And other, like one other thing for me, it was always, always interesting. Like with Google, you, because if you're an analyst, you need to be able to kind of export the data. You want to be able to put it into your own spreadsheets, smudge it, do whatever you want to do. We didn't allow any export. We had an API. And the reason why we didn't have any export was because we didn't know how people were going to use the product. And we wanted them to get annoyed and email us and say, Hey, I want to be able to do this thing and I can't. Uh, And if they could just take data out and so forth, then we wouldn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, So we did like, we basically created a whole bunch of constraints for ourselves around the product and then kind of put it out there in the world to kind of see what would happen and then try to like learn and adapt from there.
2: I mean, It was really smart. I remember it being so kind of mind-blowing to me because it was so different. This was actually good advice? I don't know, retrospective, does it feel right to you?
0: Let me diagnose for what you just said for one second, right? Because it's, you're doing the opposite of Google and Google is trying to solve the problem for websites, right? Like my real estate company that has listings and I want people to come in and register and blah, blah. And Chartbeat, I remember the first time I saw it, it was like about one article, and what, what that article was doing on the internet and who was linking to it and it was alive. And then you could react and turn that into, you could do your job with it and your job as a journalist is like, I'm gonna promote it on Twitter. I'm gonna talk about it over here. I'm gonna email it to the PR people and tell them that it's, that it's getting some lift and so on. And that was a real revelation at the time because that kind of real time action, which is how news works is very different than how Google Analytics would see the world, which is like this giant infinite funnel.
1: Yeah, I think like, this was like, I think the first thing that was profound for us was realizing that there was a different audience for analytics than the traditional audience. Yes. And it wasn't actually even journalists initially. It was, uh, it was actually EA, Electronic Arts. And they signed up for Chartbeat and put it across all of their sites. And they were spending like a million dollars a year on Omniture. And mm-hmm. I had no idea, because for us, Omniture was this, which is Adobe's kind of analytics suite.
0: Oh, man, um, Omniture.
1: Um, it's a huge beast. that we were just like, this is so enterprise, so
0: advanced. There's no way that anyone who used that would ever want to use our little service. If you want to make developers upset, you can just yeah. whisper Omniture in their ear. Like if you meet oh someone who's like, yeah, I do a lot of front-end web programming, just say... Have you used Omniture? And just what next 45 minutes of your conversation are taken Lots care of? Your face faces it's just a, twist. <sighs> Always pour your whiskey before you ask that question. Right Now, maybe um, it's gotten better. Maybe it's got, I haven't used it in a while.
1: Uh, I'd say that Adobe has been doing a lot of really good work recently, and uh, mm-hmm. I hope that's been extended to Omniture. But like for us, because we didn't, <laughs> we didn't know why they'd be using us, we called them up and we said, look, you realize you have Omniture. Why the hell are you using us? Mm-hmm. And they said, the analysts all use Omniture everyone else looks at you. And it was that notion as well. So we were coming up at the same time as the kind of rise of the social web, that notion of like frontline people being able to react to data in the moment. It was a different audience, a different use case. And we were just lucky enough to unlock that at the right time.
2: Yeah, I mean, this was me and my editorial staff for sure.
0: So fast forward a little bit, you created a company called Scroll. We should talk about what that does. And then Scroll was recently acquired by... um, Twitter, I guess it's the right way to put it. Just you know, Twitter.com, Twitter Incorporated. And uh, and now you have a product role at, at the big blue bird. Yeah. First of all, what the hell do you do all day when you're a high level product person at Twitter? We'll get to scroll in a second. I'm just like, what do you do, Tony? I think a few things. There's what I should be doing and, and what I do. I think- Well, also this, you're like at a high level, you could seriously do nothing constructively if it's the right kind of nothing. Like it's a very yeah, zen. Yeah, and,
1: and that's- sometimes it is the desire to when you desperately want to comment and so forth is to is to hold back like i still remember uh something from like marshall goldsmith who said like you can you can go along and you can like screw with something or you can like give a comment that might make things five percent better mm-hmm. but in making it five percent better you're taking away the kind of autonomy and ownership of the person below you who's doing it and sometimes it's just for the long-term health of the product you want them just, to learn you want them yeah, to feel that
0: sense of ownership you wanna,
1: You want to kind of just shut up. And I think so like for me, I think there's a few things when I think about kind of my level of product management because I'm like, I'm not in JIRA. Um, uh, Mm. Any day that I'm running a PRD is probably a bad day. Uh, (laughs)
0: That is really true. If you touch the thing, oof. It's a bad, it's a Mm -hmm, bad thing. mm -hmm.
1: I'm also overly verbose. My job is to try and provide clarity in all possible senses and also to be able to kind of connect what any individual product manager is doing into the kind of wider picture. So that's my like my first goal is always like to provide that clarity. And so that each each PM who works with me or each, each team that works with me is able to kind of be able to say like, I know what I'm going to do. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I can be creative in service of that because I know kind of like the constraints I'm dealing with and where the opportunities are. And I know how it funnels up to like the overarching strategy that we have as a company. That's the so first desc-
0: one. Describe your org to us a little bit because it's like a lot of post like, podcast listeners are PMs who are figuring out their careers and where you're at is one of the, one of the places I think they'd like to be. So like, what does it look like from your point of sure. view? And what's your job actually? What's your, what, who, who are you, Tony? Sure. So, um, so I am the, I'm a senior
1: director of product, Okay, which means I, I get to run a team called Longform, which is Twitter's h- hilarious name for anything greater than two hundred eighty characters.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I genuinely enjoy that fact so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just glorious, for me. amazing. Um, and Longform is a little bit unusual within Twitter in that. I have a slightly more kind of GM-ish role than a normal PM. I think we're the only part of the product org that has its own dedicated commercial team Mm -hmm. uh, and we have our own dedicated editorial team as well. So we have like, it's a slightly different thing in general, but if you think about the way my org works. So, so so I run the product org, I run the commercial team and I run the editorial team. They all report up into me. Mm-hmm. I then have a kind of a staff. I have a, like a group, a group product manager who's wonderful because all of my deficiencies, he balances out. Like
2: Gotta have I can
1: one. be the unfiltered asshole. He's like the calm, wise dad. And it's incredibly helpful. What's his name? We need uh, to, we need Eric to say- Wib- Eric Wibben. He was a, He was actually a founder himself. He um, he founded a company called Hyli and was acquired by Twitter a few years before me. And was Mm -hmm. was actually like really the kind of the founder of Longform. Like I just came in with an acquisition and like got to jump into the mix. But this Longform was originally his vision. So he's been a great kind of product partner. I,
0: I feel like this is a really critical lesson though that that people should take away. You can spend a lot of time in search for a unicorn leader, or you can make a Frankenstein leader out of multiple people who will actually get the job done because the unicorns aren't real. Yeah, I'm a big believer yeah. in this. You always need that balance.
2: Yeah, great partnership or a great trio, critical.
0: Yeah, and, and also, of course, knowing when to step back
1: and let someone else be CEO, correct?
0: No, no, exactly, <laughs> right? Like it, it's you, th- there's a lot going on with what you just said, obviously, <laughs> right? So no, but it's, we're we're what, about six months into the post transition and maybe, no, seven. And uh it's been really interesting to watch because I think Gina has become way more aware of kind of where I was at. I, I think what's so tricky about these roles, you've got it. I'm seeing Gina sort of wrap her head around it. It took me years to wrap my head around it, is that you have a kind of internalized portrait of yourself. And you might've started as a practitioner. You're pretty good at getting stuff done. But the way that stuff gets done has nothing to do with your basic abilities. It's just kind of like, it's this space and you keep a lot of balls in the air and people look at you and are like, what are you even talking about half the time? And yet somehow the whole thing is moving forward and people tell themselves stories about you. And some of the stories are positive and some of them are negative and some of them are completely out of keeping with the narrative that you have. And that, that can all get really, really surreal, right? And so like, it's a very strange job. And there are moments where I get to do things like write a little bit of Python code where I just am unbelievably relieved that I, I, I was able to like, no, because well, I was like,
2: I mean, you run it and it either works or it doesn't. It's a very quick feedback loop. You don't get those kind of feedback loops when your job is to align your team with the strategic vision of the company, which is the thing that Tony said he does for his PMs. And I was like, yeah, that yeah. that's that's the the leader that everyone wants, and that's a leader well, I aspire to be. But right? I was thinking,
1: I was thinking, like as you guys were chatting at the at the beginning of this, you talked about like this transition and that, like, now you suddenly understand what I was doing. You have a whole new insight. And one, yes. like, and I have to confess, like, I have long encouraged members of my team from choppy and Scroll onwards, to, like, so sort of, please go and your own companies. Can I help in any in any mm-hmm. way? Mm-hmm. And encouraged entrepreneurial instincts. And we actually had, like, I think it was Double-digit percentage of, uh, of employees at Chartbeat at my time went on to kind of become a founder of their own company. I was oh, wow. so, exci- That's yeah, I was so excited. Cool. That's um, very cool. That's very cool. That's something to be very um, proud of. Yeah, I am. But also, here's my secret there. Every single one of those, after having founded their own company, comes back to me and goes like, ah, I get it now. <laughs> and they, have, they just have more of an appreciation for the shit they, yes. used, to, they used to give me. And so I'm like it's 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 both me trying to help and support them and it's also my revenge. Oh, it's totally
0: revenge. No, it's beautiful. It's a, it's a wonderful it's, feeling. It's so true. It's not like some some actual secret mysterious knowledge that people don't have that that you get to, you know, you have some like some capitalist miracle you've pulled off and you now get to point and say I know that. It's just like you've just been humiliated in a really specific way while having power. And it really is a strange feeling, right? You're just like, you know, your spouse looks at you and it's like, what the hell are you complaining about? And you're like, Oh, <laughs> Oh, well it's a good point. This is getting real.
1: I, I certainly started reading a lot more kind of Zen and philosophy as a result of being a CEO. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I found that I, you know, you find it really helps and like, it's, and to your point about the unicorns earlier when it was like try seeking out the kind of that unicorn person who can do everything. It's like everyone is going to have a certain level of strengths and a certain set of weaknesses. And you can either spend your time obsessing over the weaknesses or you can say, I'm mm-hmm. going to give you everything I can to make your strengths awesome. And then I'm going to go hire this other person over here and they're going to do this bit that they're really good at. And I'm yeah. a big fan of kind of like meshing those kind of people together.
0: I've met, I've met a lot of leaders now and you could broadly cluster them into two groups. And I think one I would call like the narcissistic fireball, who is just someone who is able to create an unbelievable amount of heat and light and people kind of go up to them and get singed. But because the fireball is moving so quickly, an enormous amount, they just do so much damage that things happen around them. And then everybody else or people who like genuinely, if you say, hey, what are your worst qualities? They're like, hold on a minute. And then thump, a 300 page (laughs) book lands on the table. And they're like, you know, and this used to be a lot shorter, right? <laughs> and and yet here we are. Here's
1: the thing, though, Paul. I think you kind of have to be both.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. It's true. like
1: like there's a um, there's a wonderful book by John Lewis Gaddis called On Grand Strategy, um, mm-hmm. where he talks about hedgehogs and foxes from the kind of Isaiah Berlin
0: story. Which one is... Okay, so the hedgehog knows a lot of...
1: The the hedgehog knows one big thing. Hedgehog knows one thing. And the fox knows many kind of small things. Mm -hmm. And in the context of kind of strategy and so forth, he talks about kind of Xerxes. You know, Xerxes building a bridge across across the Hellespont. He was like, I'm going to do this. Nothing's going to get in my way. I'm going to bring this huge army across. He was Mm -hmm. a hedgehog in the kind of classical sense. But there were other people who are much more kind of like adaptive opportunistic they don't think about grand strategy and so forth but they're just kind of like they're just tactically kind of trying to find that their, their, it's like water flowing down a mountain it's the best pathway and you're just kind of shifting around there's no real plan other than down and there are challenges with both things the kind of that egotistical fireball kind of creates energy creates movements creates pace creates focus mm-hmm. but is often also blind, mm-hmm. finds it very difficult to adapt to changing environments. And one of the things when you're building products or startups or whatever is you're dealing in an environment of complexity that's constantly changing. So you have to be a little bit of a hedgehog. You need to be a little bit of a fox as well.
2: Yes. I never heard this story, so I appreciate you t- telling me this one. I hadn't I hadn't heard the. Although I do, I prog- my progression was personal productivity books to business leadership books, to Buddhism books. Like those, those are yeah. the three stages, I think, of leadership. Uh, and, and in the business book uh, layer, I definitely noticed that there's like, okay, there's two types of leaders and one is this and one is this. And you have to be a combination of the two. So I co-sign. I think that that's true. Kind of have to be a bit of chameleon.
1: It's a constant reminder for me about like how I want to show up. Uh, and like as a, as a kind of tall white male, I'm genetically programmed to interrupt people. Um,
0: and you sure are. And, so am I? You know and, <laughs> Hold on, Tony. Hold on. Let me get in there for a minute. It's a real. It's a real challenge. So, like, You're not I'm like literally. Tall. Well, how tall are you?
1: Every, um, the government thinks I'm six foot one, but I'm pretty sure I'm taller than that.
0: No, uh, you're, you're six uh, one.
1: i I've, I've seen you. I'm six three. Okay, so I'm so I'm I, I'm, I'm medium sized. Yeah, there we go. But like every morning, I will I, I kind of write down to myself. I like <laughs> like, like shut up.
0: <laughs> oh like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: or like the, my, yeah. Like my my three P's. It's like preparation, process, and presence. Yeah, it's like oh. those those for me are like the core. Like if I'm going to show up for something, it's like. I want to make sure I'm prepared for it and have thought about it in advance because I'm not very smart and I can't think on my feet. I'm trying to find a process to make this scalable. And when I'm there, I want to try and be present so that I'm kind of like able there. and Also reflecting what I expect from other people when they're in meetings as well. I expect them to be present. Otherwise, we're all just wasting
0: our time. This. I love this. I could never, it's very hard for me to be, I'm not light on my feet for a lot of obvious reasons, but but in general, it takes me until tomorrow to know what the hell I think, right? <laughs> totally. and it's, yeah. And, and no. So I need to be near good, fast operators who are light on their feet. Um, otherwise, I'm not really effective. Because then the next day, I'm like, what about this, that and the other thing? And everybody's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But in the moment, I'm tongue tied. I'm just sort of like, mm, oh, yeah, that's perfect really,
2: response, wow. like two hours after the meeting. Yeah, 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 yeah
0: right. absolutely.
2: That's, that's, what's what's that's thing. what
1: Slack is for. It's that, uh, <laughs> what's that French phrase, uh, l'esprit d'escalier? Uh, sure.
0: Absolutely. The French phrase I would use. What's that mean, Tony? <laughs> it's, the,
1: it's the spirit of the staircase. It's when you've like mm. you've left the room, and you're going down the staircase, and then you realize the perfect
0: comeback. <laughs> All right. Let's roll back to Twitter and to the org. We're, we're getting very yeah. meta. So you're working on long form. You have three different divisions. How big is this org total? Um, I think we're like 60 people at the core, and then there's a whole bunch of, kind of other people around it. What is a good product manager, Tony? Oh, my God. Um, Interview you Tell me. I'll. I'll. I'll try to come work for you. Like, how do I get? How do I prove to you that I am worth it?
1: I'm afraid we just filled that position Paul, but we no, welcome any applications from you. I never wanted future. to work for this stupid company anyway. <laughs> no, I mean, what's what's good? What's good? So I, I think I think of it in a in a kind of few clear ways. Um, the first one is, can you kind of like combine those elements of analysis and synthesis? Because well, the first thing you're trying to do is trying to understand the environment in which your product is sitting. yeah. Mm-hmm. So that requires a certain skill with analysis to be able to go deeper, understand from a data perspective, understand from a user research perspective, understand from all, a whole range of different perspectives. But then the second part of this is it's no, if you can only do analysis, you'll only get so far in your kind of product management career. Mm-hmm. A truly great product manager then is able to synthesize these things into a particular perspective an orientation of how you see the world and then be able to kind of extrapolate from that and say, given what I know about this environment, everything that I've learned, we should like, this is the pathway. This is my kind of theory of how we interact with the world. And once you have that theory and there are also people who are very good at that, but then fall apart at the next bit, which is actually doing something with it. And that's being able to translate your kind of airy fairy thoughts and the holistic synthesis of the, of, of the world into very clear, timely like clarity for the team about like this is how we're going to do it and think about the pathway like what's step one to be able to get us towards the place you want to go to and you find as, as we we're saying earlier like people have different strengths and, uh, and different abilities and sometimes it's like worth pairing them together and so forth but like you're the truly great pms are those who can like analysis synthesis create an orientation and then communicate that in a way where a team can act
2: that's
0: all. Let me, let me turn that around to now. Now, that person's come in. They've worked for a couple of months. They've got some roadmap in front of them, some things they're responsible for. They've, they've got some, and they have a new idea. They have an exciting new idea. Uh, a longer roadmap might require some resources, might throw things off a little bit, but they think they can get better engagement or more revenue or all the things that we're kind of in the room for. And they have to convince their boss, Tony Hale. They're going to go into that room. What do you look for? What is the way to convince you of something? How does a product manager tell you that they're right and get you to believe them? So
1: I think, I think a few things. One, when someone does that, I'm always trying to place it in the context of the wider world. In that same place, I'm like, there's a set of information that I have also kind of analyzed and synthesized about the world. Mm-hmm. Does this tell me something new? Do they bring new information that changes my perspective? Does it uh, align with that perspective? And so, like, the first thing is, like... you got to be a little surprised. Yeah, like, i will, got to, like, like does, this, does this conform or force me to adapt my mental models about the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the second thing that I'm looking for is, like, is this something which is an optimization towards, like, a local maxima, or is this a step change? Yeah? Is this something that can, like, for the effort that we want to put in, can we achieve that? And those are kind of things that I would think about as a startup, but anyway. Then there's the kind of big company stuff as well, which is, mm-hmm. like... How many freaking dependencies is this going to touch on? Yeah. You have this grand idea, is it going to involve six teams, four of whom I know have like such backlog things that they are going to tell us to just go away? Like what is the kind of practicality of how to do this in a large org when that you have externalities that are not in your control? So I think there's like a few different pieces of this cuz like in general if we wish to move sm- uh, move swiftly like Reducing the number of dependencies, or reducing them down to the places where you know either they're very keen to work with you, or where you you know they have capacity. Like those those factors also come in as you're trying to try and look through um, an idea.
2: So what's what's most likely to realistically be able to happen? Not just what what could happen in a total ideal state if you had everybody that you could.
1: Yeah, one way to think about this kind of pathfinding is you're you're trying to. Match unlimited ambition with limited capabilities. Yep. And trying to find like th-
2: the place the, where those mean. Yeah, the, yeah. Sweet,
1: the sweet spot is like, what is the thing that's going to realize the grandest possible ambition within the context of what we're able to do with the resources we have to hand? Like, yep. it's the, the other thing of, of kind of great product managers, they're kind of like a certain pragmatism.
0: Yeah. And also,
1: like, people say politics as a, as a pejorative. Um, in many ways, uh, especially as it relates to big companies and the politics of big companies, and it can be. There's also, how do I align a group of people who don't have to work with me to actually work with me? And so a product manager who's been able to think through that as well, that's actually a very useful skill.
0: This is something I, I don't think people process what bad form it is and how bad it is for the org if people who are running different divisions have to go up to the boss to get resources. It's much, much better if you can go across the hall and be like, I have something that I think is pretty good because you're going to be sharing credit. You're going to be like, you've built a network and you're going to be sharing the success and you're willing to buy, get them to buy into your success, et cetera, et cetera. I think people assume, at least I did for a long time. They're like, well, you know, you go up to the CEO and the CEO says we have to do it. And then everybody rallies around it. And if you're, if the CEO is doing that, then the organization is actually not scaling well. It's, it's, that's a bottleneck.
2: That's true. Yeah. That There's is
0: like, true. Do you know, the, um,
1: you know the, the monkey on the shoulder story from Henry Mitzburg? No. So every single person in the company has a monkey on their shoulder. who they're, they're, It's their job to feed that monkey. Mm-hmm. And they, they'll come along to the CEO and they'll say, here's my monkey. Like, here's this problem that I want you to solve. And suddenly the CEO is feeding two monkeys. And then as someone else comes along and kind of gives you another monkey. And you've got three monkeys. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, suddenly I'm feeding and looking after three monkeys. And these people are running around. They don't have any monkeys. And the answer that this great, I think he's a Harvard professor, um, gave back in, like, uh, in the 90s was to hand back the monkey as swiftly as possible. Oh, absolutely. So when someone comes to you and say, says, with well, this was like, I need more data. On that or like go and do this thing so like when you go and you try to say this is going to be the ceo's problem the ceo is going to try and hand it back to you as quickly as possible or make an arbitrary decision to,
2: to make it a monkey that you can feed yourself right yes. how do i right the ceo is asking how do i make this monkey feedable by you
0: because i can't <laughs> feed, feed everybody's monkeys. monkeys gina can attest to this we refer to that as delegating up when a person delegates up uh, that is a bad thing because bad no, because it's it's exactly that. It's like well, now I have two jobs, and what's your job? And that's a bad feeling for everybody. But
2: there's something important here. Like you have to have a perception of the org and who does have a little bit of bandwidth and who is willing to like you do. And I guess this is what you meant, when you, Tony, when you said that people said that they, they don't like politics. I, I don't know if you call this politics, but it is understanding how the org works and who can do what and how tax people are, and that that's a perception that people don't often have and don't often think it's important to develop until they can't get anything done because they can't collaborate with others. It's part of
0: the job, right? And then, but it it takes you away from being a practitioner. So when people are coming in and they're practitioners and they see you doing that job, they're like, you've lost your soul. You're not a real (laughs) person anymore, right? And I used to do that. I'm like, what are they doing? this is just a meeting. It never ends. And then you realize, you know, years later, you're like, yeah, that was how that had to happen. That was they were never getting things done.
2: Out. They were clearing the way. They were figuring out how to move forward.
0: All right, Tony, coach me for one more thing here, which is I'm going to start up. It's grown to like 50 people. And, you know, I'm not going to go into a big organization. Maybe I quit. Maybe I got acquired, something like that. This happens a lot. And this is a number one cause of just absolute fatality in an organization is the, the, the startup mentality goes into the big org, wonderful optimism. And then six months later, just kaboom. And you're kind of a, a veteran of big orgs and startups at this point. So what works? Like you're, you're pretty happy you've landed inside of Twitter, which is not a baby, right? And like it is a yeah. big complex matrixed organization, global with all sorts of challenges. Um, but you're a startup person, and yet you're, you're content. You're, you're signaling that there's lots of good stuff going on. How, what should people do? What makes that work? I think one
1: is kind of setting your expectations around all the things you get versus the taxes you pay and not thinking that you get everything for free. Like one of the things that's really interesting, um, like when, when we took my company scroll and we brought it to Twitter and we made it part of Twitter Blue and kind of blew it up to a far larger audience. We had r- the resources of Twitter, and all that kind of stuff was amazing but you don't get it for free. You don't get all the good stuff for free. You also get coordination challenges and having to make sure that your data annotation is correct. And like all of the other kind of bits and pieces that come from a large company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's that kind of like that fireball and narcissistic energy you get as a kind of, sometimes as a startup founder, when you're going and you're like, mm-hmm. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to kind of blaze a trail and I'm going to do this kind of stuff. And then you, then you realize that like that it's harder and it's not, um, it's not because the company is, bad. It's because you're like, you are dealing with a different set of investment and taxes that'll enable you to do more, but also make you pay a price for those things.
0: You know, what you're describing is, this is a pattern that happens a lot. Startups get acquired by very large orgs. Like Google is a pure example here. And then Number one responsibility is to get their software stack and their experience into the software stack and experience of the acquirer. Like Google has essentially its own operating system. It sees data in a certain way, it sees geo in a certain way, it has its own file system. It's all incredibly scalable. The idea is you're gonna do that and you'll get the trade off in the scalability. You'll be part of the global platform and your idea will be really big. But I think what happens a lot is that the people on the ground, the, the directors and the engineers who are responsible for doing that, don't feel the scale, they just feel Mm -hmm. friction, And they're not excited and motivated by the the sort of the big picture on the other side because they're just caught inside this enormous sort of rebuilding effort without clarity as like why they're doing it. So given that that happens a lot, what should people be doing? How should they be looking at that work?
1: I mean, there's some fundamental truth to that. There's gonna be a lot of stuff that you have to do when you're integrating that is just not fun. It's like all the corners you cut when you were a startup, all the things that you put off, plus having to integrate into the big systems. There is a certain period of time, and I can totally see why startup founders who and, and startup teams that come in get like get frustrated in this, where it it can be kind of like pretty crushing to kind of go through all this kind of stuff and. I'm sure that like, I have these challenges as much as anyone else when you're trying to like, go through these things. These
0: things aren't like- Well, you literally built a product in Chartbeat where if you launched a new feature, it would go out to people and you would see- re- they, It was a real-time reaction tool yeah. that you could see real-time reaction to. It was glorious. And, yeah. you
1: could do, and you could do these things super fast and you didn't have to worry about all the dependencies and you didn't have to worry mm-hmm. about like, okay, like, this is our system and we can make these architectural choices without it kind of affecting other people. So you've got, like, you, have that, you have that freedom. And I think there's two things that are most important. One is like being very upfront when you go into the new company about that thing is going to happen. Ideally, like I don't think as someone who's both acquired companies and been acquired, if you have a choice between two companies, both roughly is attracted to you, I would go with the one who has more experience acquiring companies mm-hmm. because it is an art, not just acquiring the integration there are whole teams whose specialty is around integration. Like Cisco was like mm-hmm. classically great at this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the more support they can give you, and the more seriously they take it, the better. Because teams that are kind of like companies that are new to, uh, to acquisition or treat it in a fairly kind of haphazard way, or it's a rare thing for them to do that, don't have the same systems, and so that pain will be prolonged. But the other, I think, the other clear part of this, you as the, as a startup founder coming into the company, have to do for your team is you have to still keep that vision in front of them and often like the startup founder comes in they get given a senior title and whatever and so they're they're kind of like, experiencing a lot of the kind of like the fun and they're meeting new people and they've got the new responsibilities and many of the team are kind of like sort of going like well you're getting to have that kind of fun i'm here dealing with new gdpr requirements mm-hmm. and
2: yeah
1: it's so important to be able to still, and this comes back to that kind of clarity as a kind of critical part of the role, to be able to communicate, here's that future that you're going towards, and here's why it will not always be like this, um, and there are brighter futures ahead once we're, once we're through it. Like, that, but that can't come from an integrations team.
0: It has what to come is, from the people who are the practitioners. Yeah. What is motivating about scale to you? Like, we've, we're talking about scale. What makes you... Why are people excited? And I mean, I look obviously okay. My thing is going to be in front of millions and millions of people, but you know that the process to get there is actually pretty hard. Why do we want this? My possibly naive take is that
1: while there may be people who start startups because they want to make a bunch of money, and, and I'd argue there's way,
0: way better ways to do that. Literally, most, just that's what Vanguard funds are for. Right? Yeah. Anyways, exactly. Anyway, like, okay, go ahead. But like, like yeah. I
1: think mo- for most people, there's a change they wish to see in the world, mm-hmm. and What scale gives you is an opportunity to better realize that. Like, for me, the kind of animating thing for me has been like, how do I make sure that journalists can get paid so they can continue doing the work that upholds my democracy and the democracy around the world? I mean, that's nice.
0: It's nice when we pay them. It is. Yeah, it's really nice when they
1: can pay rent. Yeah. And as a function of that, scale enables me to do that in a way that could have an actual real impact. I could have a tiny little startup and I could, like, I could pay the rent for a few journalists. Mm-hmm. But like, how do I make sure that we can still have a court reporter in Des Moines? Yeah? Right. Like, yeah. These are real problems and things where you can attack problems at scale with the resources of scale as well. That That's where like step changes become possible. Fair
0: enough. I don't
2: know, that's naive at all. I think it's no. good. Makes sense.
0: Tony, so look, I don't have a better way to end than we should pay journalists and that large tech platforms have a role to play in there. I'm not going to even... I, I can't you top even that, try to man. top that. No, yeah. no. So, so look, if people want to get in touch with you, what should they do? Is there like a social network where they could follow you?
1: There is a popular microblogging service called Twitter, which now has the the vowels in it. Uh, I'm at Arctic Tony on Twitter.
0: Why Arctic Tony?
1: So prior to my career in startups, I used to lead and manage polar expeditions.
0: Oh, well, I'm um, glad we didn't talk about that. That would have been boring. <laughs> Uh, maybe we can wow. talk about
2: that. that's a missed opportunity. We're just gonna have to do it again sometime. <laughs>
0: uh, which <laughs> wait, wait, which pole?
1: Um, north, predominantly, but I spend a lot of time around Siberia, Greenland, High Canadian Arctic, um, all over the shop.
0: Well, this yeah. is like when you write the management book, you got it right. It's just like uh, the lessons I learned from you twelve know, stories. You can learn at the North Pole exactly. Yeah. And this is this this yeah. translates to product management when you're building on uh, you know using Bootstrap. All right, so that's how people should follow you. Um, and are you hiring? Are you looking for people? What are you? Anything we are.
1: So we are we are hiring for engineers, for engineering managers, for data scientists. We're hiring for partner managers right now. 'Cause we like so much of our work is around um around working together with kind of publishers and writers and creators. We need people who can kind of like collaborate and connect the dots. So yeah, we're hiring across the board and we need great product managers. Um they just have to be willing to work with me.
0: That sounds incredibly pleasant, actually, and and, and really good. It'd be fun to work with you on a day-to-day basis. And I say that uh uh, you were very hands-off as a client. You were great. It was just like, all right, this looks good. I'll see you in two weeks. It was really, it was Mwah. And I'm, I'm assuming if we hadn't done a good job, you would have been very hands-on. It's It's a function of trust, yeah? Like, this is what, I think one of the things that
1: like, for me as a kind of manager, like, it's like, if someone is doing a good job and knows what
0: they're about, Get the hell out of there.
2: Let them do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let them go ahead and do that.
0: Well, Tony Hill, thank you for coming on the Post Light Podcast. And this come, is a lot
2: of fun. Yeah, come my back pleasure.
0: again, my God. And we need to talk about polar expeditions. Um, Gina Trapon.
2: Paul Ford. This was a lot of fun. I, I really like hosting the, the podcast with you. We got to do this more often. It's good to see you.
0: It's good you to know. see you too. It's nice to communicate uh, with you in public with Tony. It's fun. So um friends, if you want to get in touch with PostLight, a wonderful company that does wonderful work for wonderful, wonderful people, hello at postlight.com is an incredibly good way to do it. Check out postlight.com. We build things, we do you know what we do, and uh, and we want to hear from you.
2: Tweet at us, twitter.com slash postlight. That
0: is the way to do it. All right. Thank you, Paul. Thank work. you, Tony. Thank you, Tony. Let's
2: get back to work.